Uh, this is the Crossing Church. Love to summarize our vision in three simple words, and that's love, live, legacy. We want to love God with everything that we have and all that we do, but that's a battle, and so we need to live in gospel community and help one another through that. And as we do that, we want our light to shine and leave a legacy with those around us. So that's our hope. That's our desire here with the Crossing Church. Just a few announcements to help us complete that mission. Um, we got TLC, stands for the Ladies of the Crossing, coming up here in about 10 days. On Tuesday, June 18th, they're going to be doing a, a hike. And they're, uh, they're going to hike Pine Ridge Natural Area. If you don't know where that is, that's just west of Spring Canyon Park. Uh, the plan is to meet here at the church building on Tuesday at 6 p.m. That's Tuesday, June, 19th, June 18th. And uh, then they're going to carpool over to the trailhead and, and get the hike started by 6.30. So if you have any questions about that, you can see Jess Whitney. I don't know if Jess Whitney's in the house. There she is raising her hand in the back. But, yep, another uh, announcement. Uh, many of you know that we're trying to do some upgrades here. Uh, around the church building here this summer and steward this property well. Uh, we're hoping to raise about $25,000, and I checked yesterday, and we're about halfway there. So thanks for, for those who have uh, given sacrificially there. Um, and we just encourage you to consider uh, giving above uh, what you normally give and how you worship the Lord. And uh, we want to we wanna upgrade and steward this place well. So you can do that online or by dropping something in the offering back box in the back. Um, let's see. Oh, the other announcement. So many of you know that we sent uh, one of our pastors, Aaron, on sabbatical this summer. Well, I saw him this week, and it was the first time in two weeks, and it was a little strange. And he's, I was like, so how's it going? He's like, dude, it's weird. <laughs> I was like, I bet it is. I mean, I normally see this guy every day here at the church building, and uh, he's just learning new rhythms. So my encouragement to, to you all is just be in prayer for Aaron. Uh, Aaron has a unique voice in our church. Uh, he has a, a great, he is a great body part, uh, but we are all one body. And so it's a great opportunity to pray for this brother, that he finds rest this summer, but also as we head into the fall, just that he would have a vision for this next season of our church. We're hoping to uh, put down more solid roots on the college campus. Our desire is to plant more churches here in northern Colorado and in the U.S. and hopefully around the world. And we're just hoping that this sabbatical is a, a means to that end. So you guys can continue to pray for Aaron as he's uh, on this sabbatical, which goes for another nine or ten weeks. So that's, that's a joy. All right, you guys are in for a real treat this morning. Uh, many of you know that we're going through the Summer on the Mount, and you guys get to hear from one of my favorite people in all of the land. So Tyler, come on up, buddy. We're going to be in Matthew 5. And uh, for those of you who don't know Tyler, uh, I knew Tyler when he was a freshman at CSU, just a little baby freshman, uh, and now he's a little baby doctrinal student. <laughs> Uh, in year three of a five-year doctoral program. Um, this brother, uh, he's a life group leader here. Uh, he's a deacon as well. Um, but he's been a great encouragement to my heart, as more importantly, he is a child of the king, and his citizenship is in heaven, and his desire is to make an impact for Jesus in everything that he does. So this is a great passage, and I'm excited for this brother to bring God's word to God's people this morning. 
Let's go for it, bro. Awesome. All right, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. If you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you. We're going to be on page 810. And that's so we're going to go ahead and read Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. So you please stand as we read God's word. Starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have for us this morning, a word, an encouragement, a call on our lives that we are salt and light in this world. Um, we pray that you and all that we do, uh, you will receive glory. Um, we pray that your spirit will come among us to help us understand these words that you have, help convict and apply these to our lives, um, that when we leave this place, we may leave um, sanctified more like your son. Um, and it's all in your name and by your ability that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. There's an inherent desire in many people in our culture, but particularly my generation, uh, to want to stand out, to want to be noticed, to be seen. Uh, anyone who knows me knows I really love the show The Office. Um, and <laughs> there's one quote in the show where an older member of The Office is talking about a younger member, and he says, they're from the generation that thinks they should all be famous. What happened to the generation that knew you just be quiet? do your work, and die quietly. In a society of YouTube stars, we see that this desire is real, that there's a desire in our culture to be famous. But it generally goes beyond just a desire to be famous. It's to stick out. It's to be noticed. There's celebrities, famous actors, actresses, singers, even some people who we don't even know how they became celebrities, but somehow here they are, I guess. Um, they're already famous, and yet still, even they feel the need to try to shock and awe the public, to stand out, to, be fit, to get attention. There are personalities on social media, even in mainstream news organizations, who every day try to stand out with the stories they tell, um, proclaiming that we're one step away from the next major global disaster, um, tales about the end of the world, all intended to make you click, to try to attract your eyes, attract your gaze. Um, there's even a pretty famous person who kind of made a habit of putting his name on all the buildings he built in order to spread his fame and brand. We see this in celebrities, we see it in our coworkers, in our friends, our families, and even ourselves. We live in a world that is seeking to stand out in all the wrong ways and for all the wrong reasons. But here in this passage, Jesus shows us that to truly stand out to truly be salt and light, all for the glory of God, we see what that means. We see that to stand out and to be noticed is not done by saying what we think the world wants to hear. It's not done by bragging about our accomplishments 
or by standing out at the expense of others. We see that to stand out is not about seeking to glorify yourself or to elevate yourself, but standing out as citizens of the kingdom of heaven is accomplished because of two realities, realities that are expressed in the individual Christian life as well as the life of the church, the realities of being salt and light. We see that both of these realities are aiming to accomplish one result, one goal, and that is the glory of God. So in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, we are confronted with two realities for anyone who wants to consider themselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And both of these realities are aiming for one result. So that's what we're going to talk about, these two realities that are aiming for one result. The first reality we are confronted with is this, that citizens of the kingdom of heaven are salt. Matthew 5.13 begins with, you are the salt of the earth. Now, the first question that we have to ask here is, who are the you? Is it the disciples? Is it the crowd that's gathered around hearing Jesus? Is this supposed to be this general call to any who hear Jesus' voice to be salt? No, this isn't a general call to just anyone who hears, but it is, in fact, a reality specifically directed to a people who are identified by the verses above. The you that is described here are the people identified as God's people, identified by the Beatitudes, which Rich spoke about last week. As one pastor put it, in the Beatitudes, the location of the identity of God's people is being transformed. It is no longer in their ethnics, but in their ethics. It is not about receiving Abraham's DNA, but about having Abraham's faith. It's not about race, it's about grace. It's just more and more rhymes that you could keep going with that. It's to those who have tasted and felt the grace of God, who are then marked by a poorness of spirit, who are mourning their sin, have a meekness before others, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are demonstrating mercy to those around them, who have a pureness of heart, who evidence peacemaking in their very lives, and who are persecuted. It is to these people, both individually and corporately, that we see are to experience this reality. It is to them that Jesus is talking about, you are salt. So before we even begin talking about salt or light, the first question that must be asked is, are you a part of God's people? Is this you? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Because if not, you have to start there. None of the rest makes sense if you don't start with that reality of our identity. And for those of you who have, who are part of God's people, is your life marked by the characteristics of the Beatitudes? Not perfectly, but is there that natural progression that the Christian life produces, all rooted in the identity that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? After determining who it is that Jesus is talking to, we now ask the next question of what does it mean to be salt? Salt was used in a variety of different ways um, in that culture, throughout uh, even biblical scriptures. Um, The first way that we see it used is as a covenant. Um, They were called covenants of salt, displaying permanence. Uh, Salt was also used as part of the offering. Uh, Salt was used as parts of destruction to ruin people's fields. Um, Salt was even used as medicinal purposes for healing. In fact, it's in Ezekiel chapter 16, it talks about a practice where in ancient Israel, they used to rub newborn babies down with salt. 
So anyone here do that? I mean, we have a lot of babies, so is that the first step? You know, have your baby and then pop off the Morton salt, sprinkle the baby down. We don't do that anymore. That's good. These were all different uses of salt, but the main two uses that were being utilized in Jesus' time was that as a preservative and as a flavor enhancer. We all understand why salt is used for flavor. Just ask anyone who has to cut salt from their diet. It's usually not a very tasteful way to live. There are just some foods that need salt. Even the Bible recognizes this in Job. It says they're just tasteless things that need salt. Salt adds flavor. It draws it out. It can even make some of the most bland things taste pretty good. Salt was also a preservative. In ancient times, before refrigerators or even the icebox, people would want to preserve their meat. Uh, The way they would do that is they'd either rub it down with salt or they'd stick it in a barrel of salt brine, which is just dissolved salt. What this did is it stopped the rot. It helps slow down, prevent corruption. So the main two uses of salt was to promote or enhance flavor and to preserve and slow down decay. So what does it mean that those who count themselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven are salt? It first shows that we are distinct from the earth. The fact that we are called to be the salt of the earth means that we are not part of the earth. We are a substance that's been placed here by God for a purpose. And that purpose has set us apart. In John 17, we see see Jesus who's praying for his disciples, both his present disciples as well as those in the future, meaning us. He prays that we not be removed from the world, but that, however, we still retain our distinctness from the world. Essentially, we are meant to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to be distinct and distinct for a purpose, distinct to be salt. We are separate from the world so that we may be able to preserve and flavor the world. Well, how do we do that? How do we preserve the world? We do this just as salt preserves food. We act as a force of good in the lives of all those who are around us. We try with both our words and our actions to slow the corruption of sin and decay that ultimately lead to death. We see throughout Scripture how the natural progression of sin is to bring about death, destruction, and decay. In Genesis 3, we see sin enter the world, and just a few chapters later, that it's grown to the point where every thought of man was only evil all the time. And God's only recourse was to destroy the entire planet, except for eight people. Then fast forward to Genesis 18, where there's these cities large metropolitan areas that for the sake of just 10 righteous people, God would have spared the whole city, but 10 people couldn't be found. And the cities were destroyed with fire and brimstone. We see the cycle again and again throughout the books of Judges and throughout Israel's history. Time and time again, we even see it in our world today. The response to sin and sin unbridled is corruption, decay, and death. As salt, however, we are called to be the preservative to slow down this corruption. We do this as we call out sin in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We do this as we seek justice for those who have been oppressed and abused. We do this as we stand in the gap for those who do not have a voice, whether there are minorities who are being attacked because of their skin color or babies in the womb who are being killed in the name of choice and autonomy. As we see later in the Sermon on the Mount, 
we are salt as we are obedient in our battles against anger and lust, as we honor our marriages, our oaths, as we show mercy to those who wish to do us harm, as we give to the needy, as we call out to the Lord through prayer, as we focus on heaven as our ultimate end. We do this by being good workers, good parents, good friends, good family, good spouses. This is how we are salt that preserves the earth. Not only do we preserve, but we flavor. As we demonstrate the goodness of God to all those around us, as we live lives that are distinct, we see that we become a flavor to a tasteless world. Too often Christianity is seen as uh, just this religious group, uh, the group with all the rules, the don't taste, don't touch crowd, um, pretty much just a bunch of wet blankets. Uh, This shouldn't be the case. The reality is, is that we are the salt of the earth. We are the flavor that the world needs. We are the ones who add the flavor and taste for what really matters. And how do we do this? How do we flavor the world? We flavor the world as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The world offers life, a life of seeking your own self-interest, of doing what you want, of living your best life now. It tells you that it's up to you to define what's meaningful, to define what's good. This is a lie. It doesn't work like that. When left to ourselves to define what is good, the nature of sin pulls man down to a life that will never fulfill you, but will always just leave you empty. It may give you a thrill for a moment of time, but ultimately it leaves you alone and unsatisfied. As the feast of revelry that you're seeking to partake in, as you chew on it, as you try to enjoy it, all it does is become tasteless slop in your mouth. What you're seeking to satisfy you does not because it cannot. It is to this, to this that we, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, are called to be flavor, to add taste and savor. To show the world that it's not in our sin and rebellion that you find lasting joy, but it is at the right hand of God who there are pleasures and joy forevermore. This is the message we have in the gospel, that though we have sinned, though we have rebelled against the holy and perfect God, he's extended to us through the blood and sacrifice of his son a way of reconciliation, a way of being brought back into relation with him. And any and all who believe in him are saved. This is the flavor that we have to offer the world. This is what will truly satisfy. We are the salt of the earth. But salt should not be alone. Have you ever tried to just take one grain of salt, just put that on your eggs, eat it in the morning? Or have that one grain to rub into your meat to try to preserve it? Have you even just tried to hold one grain of salt in your hand? It's pretty hard to do. It's not very effective. It just doesn't work. It takes many grains of salt to have influence in the substance around it. It can't just be done as a solo endeavor. It must be done in community, in, the, in community like what the church has to offer. We, the church, all of us together are called to be salt. It is all those who are to be citizens of the kingdom in heaven that are to be salt in the earth. Well, what happens if you're not salt? We see in the second half of verse 13 that if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
salt that is no longer salty, salt that no longer has its ability to preserve or to flavor, is useless. It is good for nothing. This verse is interesting today because the salt that we use today um, isn't quite the same salt that Christ was using back in his time. Our salt's very refined, it's very pure, and it's impossible to get it to lose its taste. It's pure salt, and it remains salt. However, in that time, salt came from the Dead Sea. You would go, and you'd dig it up and collect it, and when you dig out the salt, hopefully it was mostly salt, and you'd be able to use it throughout your lives. However, a lot of times, there's other minerals also attached into the salt, also present there. And occasionally, you'd get one of those batches that was more of the other mineral, minerals than salt, And as soon as rain or any kind of moisture would come, the salt would dissolve and wash away, leaving behind a pile that looked like salt, but couldn't do any of the things that salt could do. It was this pile, this poor imitation of salt, that was good for nothing. It was salt that had lost its savor, salt that had lost its saltiness. The only response to this kind of salt was to throw it away. It literally had no other purpose. You couldn't stick it in your field, You couldn't put it in even the manure pile, but the only recourse was to throw it into the street so it could be trampled. What we can take away from this metaphor is that if we as individuals are no longer distinct from the world, if we are no longer a preservative or a flavor, we're not going to have the influence, we're not going to have the witness that God intends for us to have. We will be useless. Now, this does not mean that you can lose your salvation. Our assurance that our salvation is on faith and not work still stands. However, Jesus is providing a very strong warning that your Christian witness can be permanently damaged and become useless if you are no longer distinct from the world, if you are no longer that preservative, if you are no longer that flavor. We see this in the lives of individuals today, in the pastor who gets caught in adultery, in your college friend who is out drinking every night, while while proclaiming to be a Christian. We see this in the employee who is constantly just grumbling and lazy at work. In all these instances, the influence of that Christian becomes ruined. Their words no longer have meaning. The salt is no longer good. The witness is no longer effective. This is true for the individual, but it's also ultimately true for the church. If the church stops being the church and starts trying to be the world... It becomes useless. We, the church, we are the salt, and there's no other salt. God isn't sending a second kind of salt to help preserve and flavor the world. We are it. If we no longer, as we as a crossing church, are no longer salt, if the other churches in this area are no longer salt, nothing else can be. If we lose our saltiness, if we become part of the world, there's nothing that we'll be able to do to gain that influence back. A church that looks like the world cannot preserve and flavor the world. It's good for nothing. As gospel proclamation becomes replaced with motivational speaking, as praise and worship to our king becomes number one hit pop songs, as churches become more and more like the world, the influence of these churches will become less and less. Eventually, all those a part of them will look around and see, what's the difference between where I'm at and what's out in the world? Why am I giving my time, my money, my resources, my gifts to this body who at the end of the day isn't any different from any other club or activity or group? 
it won't be good. It won't be great. It won't be something worthy of your time, worthy of your effort. It'll be useless to be trampled out underneath people's feet. We are the salt of the earth. We, us, together, all of us, are called to be the salt of the earth, to preserve the earth, to flavor it, as we live our lives according to the gospel. So you are the salt of the earth. The second reality we are confronted from is this. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven are called to be light. Matthew 5.14 states, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So what defines light? What makes light what it is? It's defined as the natural agent that stimulates, light, that stimulates sight and makes things visible. So light's what makes things visible. The Bible uses light in a similar fashion. It's used as a method of calling into the public, of saying we need to bring something out into the open. Light's also used as a mechanism that shows the way, that prevents people from stumbling. But ultimately, we see light receive its greatest meaning when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. When Jesus calls himself the light of the world, he's referring to the fact that he is the direct revelation, manifestation of God. He is the incarnation, God made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So much so that in John 14, he says that to see him is to actually see God. That is the chief end of light. It's to reveal God to this world, to show God, this world who God is. We see in this passage that Jesus says, we are to be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are called to be the very manifestation of God, the revelation of God, the proclamation of God to a world that does not know God. Christ has come and dwelt among us. He has given his spirit to dwell inside of us so that by revealing God, by revealing the God that's in us, the world who does not know God may come to see who God is. That's what it means to be the light of the world. It's the light that reveals to this world who God is. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We experience this in our everyday lives. I'm not sure if you drive to Denver, any major city. While you're still miles and miles away, you can see that orange glow that's showing, okay, we're getting close. See this when I'm coming up from the eastern plains, my hometown. You start coming into the city, you start seeing it from way away, like, oh boy, here comes traffic. The other thing we, you see is a good illustration of this is actually going up in an airplane. You could be flying in the airplane, and if you're flying at night on a clear night, uh, you could see down. Even though it lights and cities and places, the earth is thousands of miles away, even the smallest towns, you can still see them because of their light. This is what Jesus is saying with this metaphor. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Light can't be hidden. It shines in the darkness. When you think of light, when you think of salt, it can be inconspicuous. You may not always know that salt is there until you actually taste it or until you actually recognize that your meat isn't rotting. You identify salt because of what it's doing. Light, however, is not the same way. Light is not inconspicuous. To see light, you know it's there. The very purpose of light is to be seen and to, be, to reveal something. This is the nature of the Christian witness. The Christian influence is supposed to be seen. Jesus makes perfectly clear that to sit and simply do good things, be a good person, is not an option. That is only half of the witness we are called to. 
We are called to be light, to shine, to proclaim the glories and excellencies of God. So much so that in verse 15, we see that Jesus talking, is talking about the foolishness of those who hide their light. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The idea of covering up a light, it just seems kind of silly to us. We're like, well, of course you wouldn't cover up a light. But to a person back then, it would seem crazy. It took a lot of work to get that light on. Here we just flip a switch. There's like 20 switches back there that we have to flip on to put light here. But even that wasn't as much work as what a person in Jesus' time would have to do. They'd have to collect a pot, fill it up with oil, trim a wick, create fire, because remember, that's not a thing that just have available everywhere. Um, So you have to light your wick, and then you have to periodically go back to your lamp to make sure it's full so that it keeps on burning. To make light was a hard labor. It was something that you had to be conscious of. And for them to say, I'm going to put all this labor into it and then put it under a basket would seem completely ridiculous. It'd be the incredible, just such an incredible foolishness. Likewise, for us to have the testimony of the story of God coming to earth, dying on a cross, reconciling him to himself a people for his own possession, and to not proclaim this, to not share this, it's a similar kind of foolishness. There's a famous quote that gets kicked around occasionally, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. This phrase at its best speaks to the fact that Christians' lives should match the gospel we proclaim. However, too frequently this quote is used as an excuse for why Christians don't need to verbally proclaim the gospel. This quote creates a false dichotomy to think that you cannot both live your gospel and proclaim your gospel, but you have to choose one or the other, and if you're going to choose one, you should live it. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that we are called to proclaim the gospel in both our actions and our words. Romans 10.17 states, So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. How can they hear if we are not preaching? How can they hear if we are not proclaiming? Or 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We who call ourselves citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the people of God, must proclaim to the nations who God is. It's our mandate. It's how people are saved. It's why we're here as light to the world. To manifest and reveal God to those around us by our proclamation. It gives light to all in the house. To all around us should recognize and be able to identify the gospel we are proclaiming. We proclaim the gospel in both our words and deeds that Jesus is the Christ. And if we live, we live for Christ. If we die, we die for Christ. So how are you doing at revealing God to the world? How are you doing at proclaiming the gospel where you live, work, and play? When was the last time you shared the gospel? Was it yesterday? Last week? Last month? Last year? Last 10 years? Back in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 11, we see as part of the Beatitudes the reality that those who are Christians are going to be persecuted. However, it seems that we feel we experience very little of that today. And part of that's a good thing. Part of that's because we've been blessed to live in a country that um, is fought for and stood beside religious liberty. And that's good. However, my fear is that part of the reason why we see little 
uh, Christian persecution in America, part of the reason is because we, I, are failing to proclaim Christ. We're failing at proclaiming who God is to the world. We're failing to accomplish our purposes here as light. I see how the crossing is doing its salt. We're doing good things. Children are being adopted. People are giving to those in need who are around them. We're praying for those in our spheres of influence. We are serving in the workplace. We're working for God, not for a man. We're doing so many good things. We're raising children. We just had a baby dedication where we as a community are all saying that we're going to push towards helping this family raise this child, bring them up in the way of the Lord. Those are good things. Those are good salt ministries where we are preserving the world, where we are blessing the world. However, one area that I know myself and many in this body can continue to grow in is our proclamation of our word and how we are verbally revealing God and the gospel to those around us. Once again, doing good to those around you is a great thing. It's an important thing. It's a necessary thing of the Christian influence. Without living out the gospel, we lose our influence. However, it's not the only thing. We must be light as well as salt. One of the best examples I've experienced of a man who was light was in college. There's a guy who I used to meet with on a regular basis as part of a ministry for the Navigators. During our time together, we talk about everything from everyday life, struggles in class, work, to some of the deeper things of confessing sin to one another, of just sharing what are our struggles, what are the joys, where are we coming to learn more about the gospel. However, regardless of what we talked about, whether it was movies or food, to the depths of forgiveness that are available at the cross of Christ, each topic, every conversation he used to reveal more about who God was. He wanted to know God richly, and he spent his time in his word, in prayer, to know God richly. And the natural effect of that was he then wanted to proclaim who God was, and he did that in every conversation he had. He didn't wait for the perfect subject. Um, Sometimes it would almost feel awkward, but at the end of every single conversation, um, you walked away feeling like you knew God better, feeling like you had experienced God through that conversation. So how are you doing at being light? You are the light of the world. The light's shining. You don't need to create the light. You don't need to intensify the light. God himself has put his spirit inside of you to be the light. All you have to do is not hide it. This may be awkward, especially at first, but it's what we're called to do as being the light of the world. We are called to reveal light, to reveal God to everyone with whom we live, work, and play. So this week, I pray that we may be able to share the gospel, that we share it beyond just being salt, beyond just the good that we're trying to do to the world, that we share it as light, as this proclamation, that we share God with those around us and the amazing things that he's doing in our lives each and every day. You are the light of the world. There's no other light, just us. Our third and final point is this, that citizens of the kingdom in heaven are salt and light for the glory of God. In verse 16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is this final point that we see, what is the reason that we are called to be salt and light? 
It's not for our glory. It's not for our recognition. It's not so you become famous, so you become more well-known, so that you can be praised as a good person, so that you can have a great reputation among everyone you meet. But it is for the glory of God. As we are salt and light in the earth and to the world, it is God who should be getting the glory. This is our aim. This is our goal. This is our purpose. Um, We can see this illustrated as the idea of a lamp. If we are the lamp, then God would be a beautiful painting that's in the room. Anyone who comes to turn on the lamp isn't doing it so that they could look at the lamp. They're doing it to look at the painting. We are supposed to be revealing the painting to the world. They're supposed to be revealing who God is to the world. It's not so that they come and see us. It's so that they're able to see God. We're supposed to be able to reveal God to those who are around us. We see in this verse that God receives glory as we use both our salt ministry of good works as also we use our light ministry as we verbally proclaim who he is. It must contain the salt ministry of good works. It must contain the blessings of preservation and flavor that we are called to be to this world. But it also must contain light. It must contain the verbal proclamation. So when people see the good works, they don't see us just trying to reap glory for ourselves but they see individuals, a whole body, a whole group of people who are serving a gracious and loving God. This can only be done by good works accompanied by gospel proclamation. As people see good works without a proclamation, our ministry quickly becomes legalism. That's all the people on the outside will see. They'll see us trying to perform for God. They'll see us trying to perform to try to earn our way to heaven. Say, man, that's a really good person. I bet he's probably doing that so that he can earn his place before God. I'm just really grateful that they're a really good person. They don't see the reason behind it. They don't come to glory God. Likewise, if we proclaim good works, if we proclaim the gospel without those good works, our ministry is useless. We are salt that has lost its saltiness. We must be salt and we must be light together. That's what brings God glory. So the final question becomes, whose glory are you living for? Are you living for God's or for your own? Are you paralyzed by the fear of persecution, the fear of man that you'll continue to hide your light under a basket? Are you so concerned with preserving your reputation that you will not share the gospel for fear of damaging it? Now, I don't want to minimize what it may cost to proclaim Christ. Though we strive and aim for that one result that God will be glorified, the reality of our ministry as specified in Scripture is that we're actually going to encounter two responses. We are to live to glorify God, but when we do that, we're going to get encounter two different responses. The first response that we're going to get is hopefully verse 16, where those who hear our ministry, uh, who hear the words that we see, who see our good works, are going to give glory to God. And that's awesome. However, verses 10 through 11 are also true, that as we proclaim Christ, we will be persecuted. Your friends may get upset and break off friendships. You may even be fired. Your family may disown you. You may lose your house, your business. And as our brothers and sisters around the world can testify, it may even cost you your freedom, and it may even cost you your life. 2 Corinthians, 5, 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 16 says this, We are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
This verse states that there will be two responses to those who hear the proclamation of our gospel as salt and light. To one group, it will be a fragrance of death, which can lead to our persecution. However, it's also a fragrance of life leading to life, the saving of those around us, and in that, God will be glorified. God has called us to be salt and light, to preserve and bring flavor to the world, to proclaim and reveal who he is to all those that are around us. We do this all for his glory. We don't do this to try to be famous or to gain our own acclaim. We do this because of who God is, because of what he has purchased for us with his very blood, because our reward is great in heaven where we will see God face to face, where we will receive new bodies to be with the king in a place where there's no more crying, no more weeping or pain. It's because of this reality that we are called to be salt and light. So I'll conclude with this. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president of the United States, told a story about his experience in a barber shop. He says, I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon some er the same errand as myself to have his hair cut and sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least intended to be a moral instruction, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D.L. Moody was in the chair. I purposefully lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had on everyone in the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They didn't know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts, and I felt that I had left that place as I should leave a place of worship. That is what it means to be salt and light. That when you leave, people are left recognizing that something greater than themselves, something greater even than yourself, was at work. And what was it that compelled D.L. Moody to live in such a way? What was it that was controlling his life such that where he went, people experienced salt and light? It can be summed up with this quote from D.L. Moody himself. Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that's all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. It was this church, this hope, this assurance, and the place of which he was going. His citizenship in the kingdom of heaven was worth living a radical life. It was worth living a salty life, a bright life, all to the glory of God. And the, all to the glory of God. And this God came, he died, so that we may live this salty and bright life. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for this day where we can come, where we can sit under your word, Lord. I pray that um, in our own lives, that we may continue to live a life that is salty, Lord, that we may live a life characterized by good works, that we may live a life that is just giving evidence to who you are, to, the, to what you've done in our hearts, um, that we may live and proclaim your gospel, that it not just be something that we do, but it be something that we proclaim, um, and that ultimately, Lord, we're doing this not to receive glory for ourselves, but that you may be glorified. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.